are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything possible! Live from the home of the undefeated Minnesota Golden Gophers, it's the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett's with... Chris Moore. And yeah. Sam Mulberry. Now, and to be unde- fair... And the undefeated Bethel Royals. Well, also true, and the undefeated Minnesota Vikings. Now, to be fair, the Golden Gophers are one of 10 undefeated teams in the Big Ten, which has like 26 <laughs> teams, but still... <laughs> And it doesn't seem the top ten. it doesn't seem as impressive as Wisconsin winning by like 110 to nothing. But we bring drama to our games. Mm-hmm. Like we realize this is about entertainment. Yeah, it's not supposed to be fun. giving the people a show. And apparently, John Legend likes our team because he was in the locker room because a nephew of his is a is a freshman on the Gophers this year. Did you know? Wow, that? no, there I didn't. Kind of cool. It's a pop culture podcast mm-hmm. too. All right, so what is the two five two? If you're new to this, or if you've forgotten over the many months since we did our last episode, uh, this is a podcast. We we started last February, I believe, yep. because Chris Moore and I are planning a new course at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. It'll debut next spring. It's called History Political Science 252L, yes. which is a gen ed take. Uh, it's called the History and Politics of Sports. Now, I think we need to always be upfront. We are not really experts. I am not really a sports historian. You are not really a um, sports policy analyst. There you go. But we are interested as as fans, as we've talked about to some degree, competitors ourselves, right. but also because we realize that sports is something that's appealing to students, yep. especially at university where about 25% of our students are also varsity athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives us unique ways to ask some of the same questions we would ask in other political science or history courses. It's a lens through which we can view a lot of, human soci- a lot of American society yeah, and absolutely. human behavior as well. Yeah, so that's the idea of the course. We used the spring to start kind of thinking through some of what we would cover in the course. Uh, did some interviews, maybe kind of tried out some guest speakers to bring in. Uh, Floated some topics. Exactly, and so I think it helped us get a clearer idea of what we'll be doing a few months from now in February of 2020 when we actually teach the course. Yes. So what are we doing this fall? Well, I don't think we'll do a weekly podcast, but we do want to keep working on this. Like this month, Chris and I are looking at readings to pick once textbook adoptions are due. Uh, we're thinking about guest speakers to bring in. And so here's what we expect to do. Once a month, we'll do something more like what we did in the spring, like what we're going to mm-hmm. do today, a, a regular three-segment podcast that touches on current events, uh, probably has discussion amongst the three of us about maybe the history and politics of sports. Uh, and we'll do that once a month. And then maybe once a month, we also would like to do something different and have a long-form interview with uh, local writers, speaker, athlete, perhaps right. coach, uh, and, and again, continue to talk to people who either will come into the class live and in person, or at least maybe we can record something our students can listen to later on. So right. we're efforting that as we speak. But we'll start with our first fall 2019 version of a regular 252 podcast. And guys, it's been a few months since we've mm-hmm. been here. I'm sure we were all paying attention to a lot of sports over the summer. It was an interesting summer. So we thought we would just kind of review at least a couple of big stories from the summer. I'm clearly at about 75%. So I'm going to let Sam start off by talking about some hoops. Yeah. So uh, we kind of knew going into this summer that there was this was a big free agent year. And there are times when 
there's sort of the the talk about this is going to be a big year for free agency, lots of players on the move, and then not a lot happens. I mean, a lot of players re-sign with their team. That's what I mean right. by not a lot happens. Um, 2010 was obviously a moment when a lot of things shifted, when you get LeBron going to, to, Miami. to Miami with, with Bosch. This summer lived up to expectations in terms of realigning uh, realigning a league, really. Right. There's probably, and I'm, I'm ballparking here, there's probably 10 of the top 50 players in the NBA are on different teams oh. this year, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And, and some of the top players, you know, I was looking at a couple sites ranking players. I mean, the number one player on that ranking switched teams after winning a championship, which is a pretty rare occurrence that Absolutely. a player will do that. And uh, and a lot of these moves were orchestrated by the players, mm-hmm. either teaming up. You know, we super teams go back a long ways, but in terms of players orchestrating super teams, you know, you can think about the uh, the big three in Boston in 2008. You can think about LeBron, yeah, things like that. 2010. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of that going on here. But even players orchestrating trades Ooh. for other players. I mean, um, uh, Kawhi Leonard basically got Paul George to get traded to the Clippers, which. I don't know that I've seen things like that exactly, <laughs> where that was a kind of a contingency on I will sign with you if you can manage to trade for Paul George. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was most interested in. Besides the fact that the Minnesota Timberwolves are not on your cheat sheet. That's here. right. People in new places. <laughs> not we, a lot of. Not we, a lot. We of, sat this one out. We're yeah. we're fine. We did make a move in the draft though. We we traded up in the draft. That's true. So yeah. Who did we take? Jarrett Culver. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I'm clearly not as big an NBA fan <laughs> as you are. Um, no, but this idea of players orchestrating not just signings but trades. Historically, I find interesting. So in the second segment, I'll give away enough to say we're going to talk about some important years in sports history. And one that I thought about suggesting but won't, but I'll use here, is the year 1876. Mm -hmm. And it's important, as far as I know, for just one reason, which is that's the year the National Baseball League was formed. So professional baseball had started in 1869 with Cincinnati Red Stockings, I think we talked about in in the first season. And at first, professional baseball was entirely controlled by players. The players were managers, they were owners, they were promoters, mm-hmm. they made deals with each other, they jumped teams. There was nothing beyond that, but partly because of how gambling infiltrated this and associations with alcohol and other things that bothered a lot of Victorian age Americans, a group of owners actually got together in a hotel in Chicago and formed the National League in order to not just reduce gambling and change the image of baseball, but to control labor, essentially. This is where the reserve clause famously comes from, which essentially sticks players into the 1970s in virtual servitude to a single team, as long as that team wants to keep them. And I think that's been our assumed model, right? Is mm-hmm. that This is a kind of economy where you've got you know, a small group of owners with a great deal of capital who invest who then sometimes are very hands-on, hands-off, but they're the ones who actually make the decisions, right? I mean, their fingerprints in some way are all over this. Players then um, are you know, long-term employees or independent contractors, but they're not the decision makers, right. the operation of the team. If anything, the NBA seems to be challenging this. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the one league where that's most possible, if only because star players matter so much given the size of the team and the nature of play. And what's interesting about this, too, then, is it shapes the way fandom works. Mm-hmm. Because a league like this requires, kind of requires allegiance to players more than teams because... Uh, in truth, an owner's league is great for the fan of a team because the moves are happening in the interest of your – like you can uh, – the owners are going to do things in the interest of their team where in, uh, in a, a player's league, you may have players on your team who you love, but they may choose to go somewhere else because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's more about sort of 
um, thinking about the situations that they want to be in, the people they want to play with. And so that's I feel, is, is very interesting. Um, and, and I think it... it there's a level at which it goes against maybe the sort of conservative version of what it means to be a sports fan mm-hmm. is, um, which ends up being saying, well, actually, the the owners' league is better. But then there's there's another view, t- you know, to say like, well, personal agency. Yeah, and if right. you and if you can open up to that, then you really do have to shift to being like, I am a fan of LeBron James, wherever that might take me. Well, I think it's just a different kind of affinity. I mean, I think the conservative version of what you're describing is you are loyal to your team. Right. Right. I mean, and then yes. no matter who's playing, right. it's that team. I think this is actually more like something like music fandom mm-hmm. or something. Hmm. You, you have... Or, I mean, take another direction, celebrity culture, right? Sure. Oh, I mean, okay. like, you, you've got a kind of affinity to a person. It's almost like a relationship that you have. Right. No matter what kind of music they, like, Taylor Swift can change genres and her fans will stick with her, right? Um, Kevin Durant can move teams and his fans will stick with him. It, it just, I, I don't know that's better or worse necessarily, yeah. but it's definitely a different way of fans relating to the way the professional sports are played. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it seems like... What would be the least likely league for this to happen? Probably the NFL. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, a league where players are meant to be anonymous, right? Their, their faces are hidden. They're easily replaceable. They have shorter careers. Very large teams. Very large teams. Uh, non-guaranteed money. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, except for a couple of positions, sure. maybe. But for the most part, I mean, this is why Warren Sapp you know, thought of this as, as like a plantation economy, mm-hmm. right? And provocative as that is, I think there's something to it. I mean, could this happen in a league like the NFL? Could players... You know, cultivate that kind of power? Is it just, does that work? Well, I, mean, like, I, I don't really want to talk about Antonio right, Brown I would, because of I, allegations I would, that came up. I would say things it. like, well, you have, you have that, but you also have, think about like Andrew Luck. Mm. Now, that's not orchestrating a move to another team yet. Yep. I mean, who knows, right? But there is this sense of like, how can you take ownership as an NFL player of your career and your life is to sort of say like, I'm, I'm done. And and if you pay attention to the league, there this is it's not uncommon for star players. I'm thinking um, a couple of years ago, Cincinnati or not Cincinnati, San Francisco linebacker, really really good linebacker who retired really really early, you know, and it was because of sort of concussions, concussions. Yep, right. uh, and 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 almost more like concussions and fear of concussions a little bit, mm-hmm. and like like that. We I think we'll see more and more of that. Guys saying like I'm going to do this, but I'm not. It's it's different than I'm loyal to this team or I'm but it's like you know I have other I have a my life is larger than this. Well, maybe right. especially if something like last year's Kirk Cousins deal becomes a little bit more commonplace where you manage to get money up front. Right. Right. I mean, if you plan well, then you give yourself the freedom to be able to say no. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is really hard if you need that next contract and you just hope that you'll make it three or four years through. Yeah. It. yeah. Right. Um, okay. So that's 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 a big story. I'm glad you mentioned Andrew Luck. That was kind of another one I was hoping we 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 turn to the other big one to me at least was was the year of the Women's World Cup. Yes. Um, there are a lot of things we could talk about here. We'll come back to the U.S. women's national team. Sam and I happen to be in Europe as the World Cup started. So, Sam, I don't know about you, but I watched a lot of World Cup on British and French TV. I did not. I followed it, but I didn't. But I, I actually didn't I wondered, see. I, I didn't about. see much of it. Well, yeah. so I was so I was host in Paris. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was interesting to me is that one thing that set apart the women's World Cup from the men's is the the te- I mean, the dominant teams differ. I mean, Germany sure. has historically been pretty good in both, but actually, European teams have not dominated women's football in the way they with South American teams have dominated men's. In mm-hmm. women's, it's been the U.S., China, Brazil, and more recently, Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, though, not only were there really strong European teams, like the British team was really good, or English was really good for the first time in a while, Scandinavian, Dutch, 
Well, like, Aizen is actually a, f- a fair amount of interest, certainly in France. Like, mm-hmm. it meant something that Paris was hosting this, and all these other cities were, were the were the host sites for it. So that I don't know if that just reflects the mainstreaming globally. Right. Well, and I would say on the on the domestic front, because I wasn't watching it through the eyes of a European like you maybe were being in Europe, but I was listening to podcasts the whole time we were there, and uh, like on the Ringer, for example, this was huge. There was mm-hmm. so much content about the U.S. Women's National Team, um, and you know, and the the ringer has their their niche things that they get into. But my sense was this actually was a pretty pretty because bro- even on the, even on pop culture pods that I listened to, like you couldn't help but hear about Megan Rapinoe, and I heard her interviewed everywhere. Right. Yeah. So this is the right. fir- they're actually sorry, Chris. That's no, okay. <clears throat> From sitting here on the domestic side, the the flow of the narrative around the team was really interesting because. In some ways, it takes on the same kind of motif as a dream team, as an American mm-hmm. dream team. And so you kind of expect them to win. It's unusual when they lose. Uh, the The early dialogue was and they had like a 9 to nothing win or an 11 to nothing win. And there was a conversation about was this sporting or not? And should we be celebrating this level of dominance? Um, and then... Uh, as time went on, that sort of evaporated, and basically everyone just sort of got lockstep behind the team uh, and rooted for them, except for the politicization. Ah, so here are the two questions that come out of that, because I could see this going two ways. So the first one will be, does America have a national team, You know, a team that um, generates enormous interest in competitions like this, even from casual fans, that really creates a sense of national belonging? And if so, is that now the U.S. women's national team? Because I'm not sure that America traditionally has had that because right. soccer is not our big sport, right? Like, right? I think the dream team probably came closest or once in a while a certain Olympic team, see, 1980. I would say anytime the U.S. women's gymnastics team is good, that's yeah. almost always the safest America's team. Okay. And that makes sense. So what makes U.S. women's national football team a little less safe, right, is the politicization. Exactly. So because I also thought, well, no, because it seems like it's actually blue America's team. Yeah. Because of how Megan Rapino used her platform and a couple others, I mean, to directly take on President Donald Trump. Yep. Right, and not just in the way of we won't go to the White House for a celebration, but using that as a way to actually engage in, for lack of a better word, the resistance. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how to. I, mean, I guess I'm not an acute enough kind of cultural observer to know. I mean, is it just kind of blue staters like us who are following the U.S. Women's National Team, or is it actually something that is a little bit more like? women's gymnastics every four years no i think it's closer to the first um i which what i didn't what I, what I didn't observe was sort of the full politicization of the women's national team <laughs> in the sense that like red staters were rooting against them like mm-hmm. wanted the u.s team to lose or something like that but rather it was just sort of a oh this is women's soccer we can ignore this this mm-hmm. is this doesn't merit our this doesn't merit our conversation, right? Um, whereas I feel like the sort of um, maybe blue state media sources really wanted to get behind this U.S. Women's National Team. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's, I'm about to teach nationalism in my modern Europe class, since we'll talk about, you know, what defines the nation, how is that identity deepen, and I think sports is a way this can happen. I do think we're in a moment where it's fair to ask, is there a unifying American national identity. I mean, is there, mm-hmm. whether it's an origin story or values or, you know, loyalty to a team, can that actually exist? And I, I think this is actually a good test for that. Right. So the other thing, because of Megan Rapino being so prominent that I was thinking about was, I mean, have we now seen the mainstreaming of LGBT athletes in 
big time sports, right? There, are, I, I forget the exact count. I think there are five fully out lesbians on the OSWNT, including mm-hmm. Megan Rapino, who's very public about a relationship with Sue Bird, who's a WNBA player. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, you know, is it kind of becoming an iconic figure? At some point, we need to talk about gender, femininity, um, with someone like Sarah Shady come back and talk about this. But especially because of that picture of her, like, I wondered. I mean, does it make it even more likely we'll see this in other sports, or is there something sui generis about women's soccer or women's international I'd sports? I'd love to talk to Sarah about this, but my my off-the-cuff would say that there's a difference between um, uh, Megan Rapinoe, Sue Bird, um, and the, the, the very difficult-to-cross masculinity line in something like the NFL or the NBA or MLB. We have a, there are a couple current or former MF, um, NFL players who have you know come out as bisexual mm-hmm. or, or came out after they left the sport. The same with the NBA. There are not any current NBA players who I, I'm aware of that have, that have come out. <laughs> and I think that's for all kinds of, of culturally loaded reasons. The masculinity of those sports is, 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 is a much bigger impediment to that kind of that coming out. Okay, final question that I have. Then we should probably get ready to play our uh, Mount Rushmore game in segment two. Uh, another member of the U.S. Women's National Team, Carly Lloyd, famous for scoring a hat trick four mm-hmm. years ago. Um, I think a lot of us saw the viral footage of her kicking a 54-yard whatever field goal. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a Philadelphia Eagles training camp practice. And it, it should have been the Vikings. It should have been. They could use it. Um, but it led to some speculation. I don't know how much of this is just uh, promotional games mm-hmm. in real, but like an NFL team would offer her you know, a, a tryout, or at least, and you know, to the extent we've seen women play competitive football at mm-hmm. the high school or college level, it's as a kicker. Yeah, this is someone who clearly has. I mean, I don't think she's done a lot of football place kicking, but clearly has the physical attributes to do it. Right, right? and there's a long history of soccer players. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I mean, so I guess like whether it's her or someone else, like, is that possible? Could the NFL actually become the first major professional sports league? to see that kind of integration? I'm so glad you asked this question. Okay. Um, I think strongly yes. I think it's most likely to happen in the NFL, and I think it's most likely to happen in exactly this scenario. Mm-hmm. And let me go a step further. I hope Carly Lloyd becomes the first female kicker in the That'd NFL. Great. But um, the reason why, I'm, I'm going back to this essay that I want to use for the class mm-hmm. uh, by Chuck Klosterman uh, uh, about football, where Klosterman makes this argument that football simultaneously carries the trappings of being America's most conservative sport, Hmm. while in terms of actual form is America's most progressive sport. Because it is the most open innovation, is the most open experimentation, is the most open to changing its rules and adapting to changing societal norms in terms of its rules. And I think that there would be very little pushback from any NFL fan base if their team hired Carly Lloyd to be their kicker if she, if she was, was good. good. Right. Yeah. Because no. there's plenty of teams who are haunted by bad kicking. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's all true, and it'd be interesting to talk about that with, with students. It's also the most hyper-specialized league. Right. Where you could have Absolutely. a kind of niche like this where even if on most other dimensions she would not be able to compete at that level, she possesses that skill set. Exactly. Right. And, and, and you might look at her and say, I don't know that she's going to be able to take down a, a – you know, a wide receiver running a kickback, but like I look at most punters and say, I don't think right. they're going to be able to take down right. you know somebody like that. So, so yeah. And th- if she did, imagine oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> well, that, okay, the reaction you just had yeah, right. was be the reaction that every NFL owner knows would be in the minds of their fans if it happened. Yeah, and that itself is kind of alluring. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I think number two would be baseball because pitching is such a hyper-specialized dimension mm. that I think it's even more likely now that NLD will, will do away with batting. I mean, I, we've seen this actually happen at minor league levels. The St. Paul Saints actually had a woman named Isla Borders pitch for them for a couple of years. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. That, that seems less likely to me than the Carly and Floyd scenario. But again, because of specialization. Now, the problem there is that is in many ways the least progressive. Right. Right. The most weighted with tradition exactly. and expectations. Right. Whereas exactly. in the NFL... I mean, the Vikings got some coverage from 5-3 because they went back to 1972 with their rushing attack, and that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> You're appealing to a nostalgic past. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, this is good. I think we're hitting our stride already in our first segment for the fall. Where we're going to come back after a break and talk about what four years from history would go on the Mount Rushmore of sports years. in sports history. Boston, Massachusetts, September 9th, 1960. The Denver Broncos defeat the Boston Patriots 13-10 in the first game of the upstart American Football League. After 10 seasons and two Super Bowl victories, the AFL merges with the NFL in 1970. All 10 of its franchises remain active, with the AFC West and the AFC East entirely composed of AFL teams. New York, New York, September 10th, 1988. German Steffi Groff completes tennis's Grand Slam, defeating Gabrielle Sabatini of Argentina in three sets to win her first of five U.S. Open titles. Chicago, Illinois, September 12th, 1895. Annie Londonderry, a Latvian immigrant to the United States, became the first woman to bicycle around the world, just two weeks short of a year since her epic journey began. Munich, Germany, September 9th, 1972. In the most controversial game in the history of international basketball, the Soviet men's team wins the gold medal by handing the United States their first Olympic loss as the referees replay the last three seconds of the game three times. Now the clock shows three seconds. There is time for the Russians to go to their big man, Alexander Belov. They're going to try. Alexander Belov between two American defenders. Back there with him, Jim Ford and McMillan. And the Russian team has mobbed Alexander Belov. And this time it is over. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. All right, welcome back to the debut episode of Season 2 of the 252. In Segment 2, we will often have a conversation amongst the three of us about sports history or politics. And one of our favorite ways to review the history of sports is to nominate four member, or to nominate members of a sports-related Mount Rushmore. So we've done this with, I think, I think we start with like the NFL or Super Bowl. We've done it with yep. baseball. We've done it with uh, NCAA basketball. We do yep. with sports movies was fun. And often what we'll do is we'll each come here with three or four nominees, and then we'll let our listeners vote 
in the top four enter the exalted status of 252 Mount Rushmore, Mount Rushmore. Sports. So we're going to try that again. It seems like a good way to start our season. We're going to do it with a twist, though, one that will cover lots of different sports from lots of different time periods. What, you guys, is the Mount Rushmore of the most significant years in sports history? And Sam, this is your idea. I need to let you talk about it. Why, why were yeah. you so drawn to this idea? Because uh, I, I, I think... Um I'm, uh, part of it has to do with a kind of historical FOMO, like like <laughs> things that like like oh I, okay I will admit I wasn't a huge sports fan in the '80s because I was a kid, like I was little, like right. I didn't really catch on to sports probably until '88 or '89, for example. Right, and but I look back on like years in the '80s and like oh why was I not watching the NBA in the mid '80s or mm, why was I mm. and so so then I like to think about like if I could get in a time machine and go back. And be uh, like a sports writer who gets just happens to get sent to these things and not know what was going to happen. Like, what would have been the most fun year to just if you were to take a sabbatical and say, "I am just going to ingest sports." Um, mm-hmm. That made me think of that. Like, like, like what are what are those sort of apex years? Now, what I'm curious about uh, this is the most highly researched of these we've ever oh, yeah. done <laughs> by far. I'm curious about methodology. Before we get into the years, I want to hear how each of us approached this. So, Dr. Moore, what uh, what was your methodology? Well, first of all, I want to claim just a real uh, inferiority complex here because <laughs> it's a good I'm way a, to start. I'm about Lord to engage in a exercise in claiming historical precedents with two historians. So, um, but not sports historians. That's right. Right. I, I can't go dragging wars into this, right? No, Which is although I'm, like I'm actually going to at one spot. Oh, uh, but that's, that's um, a savvy move. So, um, that said, uh, my methodology was basically to look for years where either something happened that extended outside of its own sport, something that was really important for society at large, or. Um, something that represented a fundamental shifting point in that sport. Now, I didn't pick this date, but I actually did look up and see what was the first year the designated hitter rule came mm-hmm. into play. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the first year that the three-point line was in the NBA? I thought those were interesting kinds of years. Now, I didn't end up landing on either one of those two years, but um, those kinds of things were important to me. Yeah, that's kind of where I started, and that's why I thought about like 1876, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's something that set something that we now take for granted but was actually an innovation in its time i look back at some of what we had talked about last year whether it was in the this week in sports history or moments we had talked about here like because we talked a lot about what does significance mean and often it had to extend beyond you know the court the field the pitch the rink and it had to have some social political cultural dimension mm-hmm. and, and then i came down to it and thought you know i'm still a, a fan in my core and kind yeah. of like sam like what would i want to see and so what i did was i went back to an exercise Sports Illustrated done two years ago, three? I think something like that. So they, I forgot who the panel was, but they asked a panel of journalists and historians and athletes and coaches, what are the 100 greatest moments mm-hmm. in the history of sports? And I, I, as I want to do, just went through, recorded all the years and created a table. And I just kind of went, like, which years had the most moments from different sports gotcha. in them? And, and then, not surprisingly, a lot of those also had repercussions beyond that particular event. But some of them were just the pure joy of, the unexpected moment, which we've talked a lot about defining what captivates a lot of us about sports. And I will say my bias was towards um, <laughs> great like great players, like stars and dynasties, either the beginnings or ends or collapses of dynasties. I made a list of athletes where I said, if I can get a piece of this athlete like at their apex, I mean, that that's going to kick that year up for me. Sure. So I didn't tend to look towards necessarily specific games although some of them come up i also thought about like what would be a fun season if because if i'm gonna if i'm gonna time machine this whole year 
it doesn't matter if there was one really, really great game. Like, what was a great season where I could either watch a great team or a great player throughout the course of that season? So I was looking at stars, dynasties at their apex, their beginnings, or their ends. Okay, so three somewhat related but different methods. Mm -hmm. We've each come here with, I think, three, four Mm -hmm. years, and we're going to just take turns going around. We'll then compile a list. I know we've got some overlap, so the list will probably end up okay. being like nine or ten. Now, there's one There's one unanimous one, so let's save that to the end. Oh, okay. And I think, yeah, we, you and I have both had it, and I know Chris has it, so we'll save. Yeah, we'll yeah, save okay. that to we'll the end. We'll save that for the okay. end. Okay. Do you want to go first, Dr. Moore? Oh, and, and then, or, so listeners, you'll be voting for this. We're yes. still working out the voting procedure, but you can look for this on the Live from AC Second Facebook page. Or as you might recall, on my blog, Pietist Schoolman, I always do a show page for the 252. So we'll, we'll let you know how to find it later. But you'll be voting for the four winners. Okay, Chris. Okay, thanks. So let me go into, uh, let me tell you just a little bit of a story to introduce my this, my, this first year. Uh, it's, it's in my lifetime. And it's at the time in which I'm really becoming politically cognizant, or not politically, I'm cognizant of sports. I'm becoming a really big sports fan for the first time, probably about three years earlier is when I really started to become a big sports fan. And um, it also coincides with a couple of major global geopolitical events. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, it's the end of the Cold War, Mm -hmm. and uh, everything goes with that. (laughs) And also, it's a time at which the United States is just emerging from uh, the first Gulf War. So I'm nominating 1992. Okay. Let me tell you about some. Let's of hear the, about it. Let me yeah. tell you about some of the things that happened in 1992. Um, Michael Jordan wins the MVP. Uh, the Bulls repeat as NBA champions. Of course, they'll go on to three peaks. So that's not the most important thing that happens this year. Blue, the Blue Jays uh, win the World Series. They are the first non-American team to win the World Series. Um, but uh, even more than that, uh, a lot of my nomination for this comes in the form of basketball. Mm. Uh, first in the NCAA, you get a great NCAA tournament that ends in the most iconic NCAA moment of all time, the shot by Christian Leitner, which I would argue should be called the pass by Grant Hill, but that's my personal uh, <laughs> preference. Um, and also, um, you get the Dream Team. And I just want to tell you, this is my personal – when I think of the Dream Team, this is what I think of. I think of my friend Chad Lilliman. Um, I sincerely doubt is listening to this podcast. Uh, but Chad had a poster in his room of Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan with F-16s flying behind them and American flags, and the banner read, The Joint Chiefs of Stuff. Wow. <laughs> That's a good sports pun. It's a fantastic <laughs> sports pun, but it really illustrates how fundamental the Dream Team was to American identity and American nationalism. I had not even thought about that because it was on the moments list for both ones, the Leitner and the Dream Team that you just mentioned. Um it also, I think, is the year that Magic Johnson came out of retirement to be the MVP in the All-Star game. That's correct. But it also, it's like, it's the end of history here. Mm-hmm. It's the Francis Fukuyama, you know, capitalism, democracy of triumph, the U.S. is the lone superpower, and the dream right. team embodies that. And the rest of the world doesn't seem to mind. Like, yep. Congo is happy to be crushed by Charles Barkley, right? Like, yep. it's a unique moment in with America's relationship with the way he trades jerseys after they right. get and after they Yeah, get and, and as, a, as a fan, like, it was the most anticipated. Like we heard about that for a year that we were going to do because we we had lost in '99 or excuse me in '88, yep. and and it's like okay, what would it look like if we just said we're going to take this but with all possible force, right? Yep. And it was yeah. 
Okay. And I'll just throw in one last thing, which is to say that, and we, we missed this now, but not only was there the Summer Olympics in Barcelona in 1992, and there were some great individual performances in the Olympics, there was also a Winter Olympics in Albertville. Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, Alberto Tamba. Exactly. So we had two separate Olympics in that year. Uh, the I last think, time, I think. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, I Allow me to retort. Please. I am going to say 1991, so okay. back-to-back years. Uh, this The year kicks off with... Uh, the first of the Super Bowls that the Bills lose. It's also kind of the end of the 1980s for football because it's a Giants Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, the Otis Anderson. This mm-hmm. is also Gulf War. This is the Whitney Houston Super Bowl. Yeah. Oh, um, you yeah. know, so we get that to kick off the year uh, in college football. Chris, this one's just for you. Uh, Desmond Howard seals the Heisman Trophy <laughs> against Ohio State. Uh, <laughs> it's not actually this great moment, but I was <laughs> I had to say that for you. It is the first Women's World Cup won by the Women's U.S. National Team. In baseball, you get, and this is this is one of those stars things. It's not even a player I particularly love. You get uh, Nolan Ryan's seventh no hitter, hmm. which, as a singular event, I remember actually watching this game. And a no hitter is about the most fun thing to watch because it could fall apart at any moment. Yep. And the fact that it was Ryan's seventh was kind of crazy. In baseball, the Twins and Braves both go from worst to first, play one of the great World Series of all time. The Twins win. This is a little personal for me, so <laughs> yeah, my team wins. Uh, this is the year UNLV goes undefeated but loses to Duke, and this mm-hmm. is the beginning of that Duke dynasty. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get Michael Jordan breaking through and winning his first NBA title. So this goes from Jordan, the big-time scorer, to, you know, but, like, has never won anything, to Jordan, the greatest. The GOAT status starts here, right? Mm-hmm. They beat the Lakers. Um, you get the Pittsburgh Penguins winning their first title over the Minnesota North Stars. So you get some some peak Mario Lemieux in the playoffs. He's injured for most of the year, but there are seven Hall of Famers on that Penguins Ooh. team. So mm. uh, a lot of guys winning their first title. And then in tennis, you get Monica Seles winning three Grand Slam titles. You get one Steffi Graf title. There's lots of stars at the p- top of their game. Good call. Okay. Good call. All right. So you two have illustrated your methods pretty well. So I'll start with my purest moments selection, which mm-hmm. is 1980. So in that whole SI 100 list, the only year that has five moments is 1980. So not surprisingly, the top moment on that list is the Miracle on Ice. Yes. But also at that same uh, Winter Olympics, Eric Haydn won five gold medals in speed skating. Also, that was the year that Magic Johnson was a rookie with the Lakers. In the NBA Finals in Game 6, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was injured. Johnson started at center and went for, I think, 42 points, like 13 rebounds, 7 assists. Won the series for the Lakers as they researched. Uh, it's the year that Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe continued the rivalry with probably their greatest match at Wimbledon. The finals went five sets, including a 20-minute tiebreaker along the way. And in hockey, the New York Islanders won their first of four Stanley Cups with an overtime goal in Game 6. So those were the five SI moments. In addition to that, it's a good year for the state of Pennsylvania. The Steelers won their fourth Super Bowl. And the Phillies finally won their first World Series, the oldest team that had not won a World Series in the hmm. National League. And for boxing fans, that is the year that Roberta Duran first beat Sugar Ray Leonard, and then the rematch is the no-mas fight when there's a technical knockout by uh, uh, Leonard of Duran. I love the pugilism entering. Well, you know, we th- mm-hmm. I had to throw it in here. So I think just in terms of pure moments, I mean, I feel like I could almost put it on there just because of the miracle on ice, because yeah. at least for Americans, that's such a mm-hmm. pure moment. But there's so many other things happening. Absolutely. I'm put it up there. Can I do my second now? Please do. Yep. Okay, so moving down the list. One thing that's interesting about the SI list that probably tells us a lot about who is on the panel, but also about the time, is that 20% of those moments come from the decade of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a stretch of years from uh, in the middle of the decade where every single one of those years has three moments on the list, which is pretty unusual. But um, I'm going to go with 1972. 
So we've already heard of just before this segment, that's the year of the infamous Soviet-American last three-second basketball game in Munich. Um, but also that's the year of Mark Spitz winning his seven gold medals in swimming mm-hmm. against the backdrop of the, the tragedy of the Israeli athletes being kidnapped and then murdered. It's also the year for hockey fans, speaking of the Cold War, Chris, when Canada plays against the Soviet Union in the first Summit Series. I think we've forgotten about this, but in a sense, this was the dream team moment because Canada had always sent an international Mm. or an amateur team, and they kept losing to these Red Army teams. So Canada decided to take its best NHL players, including Bobby Orr, Mm. and put them, and they played an eight-game series, and they won the last three by the same player, actually, in Moscow to win the Summit Series. Um, it's also the year Franco Harris's Immaculate Reception, which yep. for a Steelers fan would mean something to me. It doesn't. Ah, but for other uh, Pittsburgh fans, it's the year that Roberto Clemente dies in New Year's Eve plane crash. Mm-hmm. It's the year Billie Jean King becomes the first woman to repeat as U.S. Open singles champion. The Dolphins win their perfect season, which they then complete the following January in the Super Bowl. The Oakland A's win their first of three straight World Series. And most importantly, it's the year the U.S. Congress passes Title IX, which we've talked oh, often well about. So well there's my social implication for you. Yep. All right, so I think we're, are we circling? Are we snaking back, or we'll, sna- we'll snake back? Okay, because I'm going to stick in the 1970s. Okay. So here's my 1970s year: 1975. Uh, good one. So you get the Pittsburgh Steelers winning their first Super Bowl again. Minnesota keeps losing in these things to the Vikings. This is the beginning of the the team of the 70s is the Steelers. This is the beginning of that. Um, you get the Cincinnati Reds defeating the Boston Red Sox in one of the great World Series of all time. This is the Pudge Fisk Game 6. And, I mean, this is like a Russian novel of a series. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, Ken Burns' baseball has a huge piece on this series. Uh, John Wooden wins his 10th and final title in his last game at UCLA. Uh, one of the a- the first athlete's name I wrote down when I said I want to have a moment for this person is Muhammad Ali. So this is the thrill in Manila mm-hmm. uh, against Joe Frazier, regarded as one of the great uh, boxing matches of all time. You get Jack Nicklaus winning the Masters and the PGA, so you get two Nicklaus titles. Uh, you get Arthur Ashe winning Wimbledon. Yep. Um, so he's the, the first African-American to win Wimbledon. You get a 21-year-old Chris Everett winning the French Open and the U.S. Open. And you get the last major or last Grand Slam title with Billie Jean King winning at Wimbledon. Okay. Chris, what's your second? Well, I again, we're kind of in the same ballparks here, and I'm going to piggyback a little bit off of you, Chris, because you said 1972. Um, Sam, you said 1975. I'm going with 1973. Mm-hmm. And for some of the same kinds of reasons here. So you, I, I will acknowledge that the Miami Dolphins won all of their games in the 1972 season, yep. but they actually complete that run with winning the Super Bowl in 1973. So I'm going to take that Super Bowl win of that the, the only team to finish that perfect season um, as part of the 73. That's going to come back to haunt us here for our last pick, I think. <laughs> um, other things happened on the football field as well. O.J. Simpson uh, became the first player in NFL history to run for over 2,000 yards that season. Um, and uh, here's something else kind of fun that I learned in looking up 1973. Um, a little network called the Home Box Office Network, HBO, oh, showed their first boxing match uh, in 1973. And they showed uh, George Foreman knocking out Frazier wow. to win the heavyweight title. So I feel like that's a that's kind of a significant good, yeah. cultural uh, shift. Um, but it's not the most significant cultural shift. The most significant cultural shift in 1973 is that that same Billie Jean King um, that won Wimbledon in 72 beat uh, Bobby uh, – um, 
Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs in uh, the Battle of the Sexes in 1973, yep. and, and I would I would pair that with Title IX as yep. those as important moments uh, from the mid 1970s uh, for women's sports. But lastly, the greatest non-human fe- uh, oh, non-human this is one that kills me to not have in 1973. <laughs> Secretariat wins the Triple Crown. That was right under Ali for people or athletes yeah. that I wanted, and I, I couldn't feel bad. Do it. Ali isn't in any of my years, but I I had to include Secretariat. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before. I would actually put Secretariat at Belmont right behind the Miracle on Ice in yeah. terms of like the sheer rush of emotion watching yep. that even in replays absolutely yep. yeah. do you want to give us uh, one more or well you may give one more should we do our consensus one uh, let's give one more and then we'll do the consensus yeah. okay so I'll give you because I haven't done my best year yet oh okay sure 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 um, in that case um, let me give you my honorable mention um and I'm cheating here. This is well before my time. I had I, I looked through sort of history, and um, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll just mention here. I think we should consider 1941. Uh, 41. It's it's not a, it's not a really deep year, but uh, uh, Joe Lewis is a um, is at the top of his game. It's sort mm-hmm. of Sam's kind of idea. If you want to see one of the greatest boxers of all time at their peak, there you go. 41 for Joe Lewis. Ted Williams hits 406. And um, Joe DiMaggio has a 56-game hit streak. And that's a great example of something that's not – it's an event that's not one day, but it's two, three months. Yeah, yeah. and it just – it, these, these are both – the 406 and the 56-game hit streak are both just iconic numbers in baseball. There's also a fantastic All-Star game that year. There Williams is. hits a, two, uh, a walk-off. And you get – do you have more baseball? Cause I know, I, okay. but I do have one – Can I throw have, one baseball thing in there? Sure, please. Yeah, because you also get the Dodgers finally making it. So this is the first Yankee-Dodger World Series, yeah. which we're going to see a lot more of yep. Yep. I, I'll just throw in more in here a lot of sporting events were canceled in 41 mm-hmm. because of the uh, because of the war which made the ones that happened I think more important and whirl away won the triple crown yes. that year love it I yep. love it that was that was one that I, I kicked around for a while so is that one of your years or not that's my honorable mention year Oh, okay. I'm saving my actual pick oh, yeah, because it's a consensus pick amongst okay. all of us. So uh, here, here is my argument for uh, the non-consensus, unassailable, this has got to be on there, which is 1984. This is my mm. FOMO year because I vaguely remember some of this stuff. But I don't know how much you remember this year. I was seven. So the, the year kicks off with the Miami Hurricanes beating Nebraska 31-30 for the national title. Um, Nebraska chooses to go for two at the end and and uh, and doesn't get it. So so Miami wins its first uh, national title. Uh, at the other end of the year, you get the Doug Flutie game. So Flutie wins the Heisman, mm-hmm. but the big the big uh, hail mary game from Doug Flutie. And then in football, in the nineteen eighty four regular season. So at the end of the year, you get Dan Marino setting every passing record, <laughs> and you get Eric Dickerson setting the rushing record. So records falling like crazy in football. Uh, over to one of Chris's favorite sports. Not a lot to say in baseball, except there's a an electric 19-year-old Dwight Gooden Ugh. who strikes out 276 batters in 218 innings yep. with a 2.6 ERA. I would love to have lived through that year and paid attention to the Mets and just mm-hmm. wa- watched every Gooden start would have been and amazing. And being able to watch it not knowing what would come. That's what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. I think this is the beginning of this was what this yeah. career was yeah. going to become. Yeah, forget yeah. about where it went. Like, you were just thinking, I, I'm, I've seen the future. Yeah, like that would, mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff that excites me. Uh, anything happened in college basketball? Well, Patrick Ewing faced Akeem Olajuwon in the NCAA Finals in oh, Georgetown, won the title. Uh, in the NBA Finals, you have the Celtics-Lakers, the first Celtics-Lakers series with mm-hmm. Magic and Bird, so the rematch from 79. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a seven-game series, one of the great series of all time. And this also kicks off a new era of the NBA because there were some guys drafted this year into the NBA named Akeem Olajuwon, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, and John Stockton all drafted that year. Uh, The Edmonton Oilers win the Stanley Cup. This is peak Wayne Gretzky. It's not his best 
best, best, best year, but it's in the middle of the peak of Wayne Gretzky. Mm-hmm. He's another guy I wanted on the list. Uh, we have the Winter Olympics in Sarajevo, mm-hmm. the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. This is the Olympics of Mary Lou Retton, of Carl Lewis. Yep. Um, and then you get uh, at Wimbledon, you get John McEnroe winning both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. Women's tennis, you get Chris Everett winning the Australian Open and Navratilova winning three Grand Slam titles. That's a pretty good year. <laughs> That's a great year. It is a good year. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back in time. I think one problem with the SI list, and generally with even how I'd approach this, is recency bias. Right? Yep. Things that stand out from our childhood or adolescence or when we became fans. So I feel like I need to have one. I couldn't make the case for 1876, but I could make the case for 1954. So on the SI list, that is the oldest year to have three moments, and they're pretty good moments. So... Among other things, you get the greatest landmark in running history. That's the year that Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile at Oxford. It's the year that the greatest all-around player in baseball history, Willie Mays, makes his greatest catch. That's Mm -hmm. the -the over-the-shoulder catch Mm -hmm. in the World Series at the Polo Grounds. And it's the year the greatest woman in American sports history, who we somehow have not talked about yet in the 252, Babe Dittrickson Zaharias, comes back from surgery to win the U.S. Open by 12 strokes. Now, of course, Zaharias did a lot more than just golf, but she ended Mm -hmm. as a great pro golfer, and she died a year later. So Mm -hmm. it was also her last hurrah. Also on top of that, beyond the SI list, this is the year of the Men's World Cup, there was no Women's World Cup, where West Germany won its first of four World Cups. And it's important because it was the first time the Germans been allowed to compete since World War II. There had only been a couple World Cups before the war. This is when they would come back, and it's the beginning of the dynasty for, um, for mm-hmm. that team. Mm-hmm. And being a homer, it's also the year the Minneapolis Lakers under George Mike and win their third NBA title. It's almost impossible to imagine the Minneapolis Armory used to be kind of like right. the forum. <laughs> right. So I'll, I don't know that's the greatest sports year, but I think at least needs something from a little bit earlier. So I like 1941, but I like 1954 too. Absolutely. Okay, so now we have one year that we all put on our list. So I think we name the year. Recency bias. We name the year, and then we go around naming events until we're out of events. Sounds Uh, good. So the year is 2008. Chris, do you want to kick it off, Dr. Moore? Yeah, and I want to start with the one that's the most political. So I don't want want either one of you to steal this. And I want to when I think of 2008, that's the year I moved. uh, That summer, I moved up to Minnesota. I started my job here at Bethel, and I remember. in my in the rented house in Fridley that we were living in, watching the Summer Olympics. And this is the only time that the opening ceremonies are memorable to me. Um, for political scientists, we had talked about the rise of China really since the end of the Cold War as a, as a, as a dominant balancing force to the United States. But 2008 was when that came to fruition. And it, it, they announced that at the Summer Olympics. This was this dominant display of Chinese national power, and it was both artistic and beautiful and overwhelming and daunting and um, was simultaneously a, a sporting event and a political statement. Well, you just stole my thunder because that was my main case for 2000. It's the rival of China as the new kind of superpower. But I'll talk about what actually happened at the Summer Olympics. So you've got Usain Bolt not just winning the 100, I mean, the two premier events at any Olympics, the 100 meter dash, but obliterating the field. Um, With world records in both. With world records. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's the year of Michael Phelps' eight gold medals, which is important. But I would also say. I've mentioned the Miracle on Ice. I've mentioned Secretariat. My third greatest moment in sports history that I could watch on Endless Loop on YouTube is watching the last leg of the last race that won Phelps the gold medal, which is the 4x100 medley relay, where a guy named Jason Lezak 
manages to overtake the French. Mm-hmm. And listening to Dan Hicks lose his mind as he realizes that this could happen, I mean, I think it's one of the purest like photo finish moments in sports history. I'm going to add to that. We were actually podcasting back then. I kind of want to go back and find the clip. Well, I'm not going to put it in the show, but we actually talked about that race, and you talked about the meaning for that race in American in, in America. Yeah, it was yeah. So like we actually had a moment of reflection, you, Stacey Hecht, and I on that mm. uh, that particular race. Um, I'm going to go to a sport that I mentioned that nobody else talked much about. Well, Chris talked a little bit about, I guess. Uh, in tennis, you have Venus defeating Serena Williams in the Wimbledon finals, but then Serena going and winning the U.S. Open. So we have both Williams sisters winning majors. This is kind of the peak of Federer-Nadal. So Nadal, uh, wins, Nadal wins the French Open uh, and finally defeats Federer in Wimbledon. So they, they're in both those finals together. five-hour final. Yes, right. epic, epic Wimbledon final. <clears throat> and then Federer wins the U.S. Open. So, I mean, you get you get tennis, lots of tennis greats at their at their. Can peak. we pause to acknowledge that those two are still the two greatest players in their yeah. sport and it's yeah. 11 years later? It's crazy. It's yeah. incredible. I mean, they are – Federer is – He's not. He's like late thirties. Like, yeah. like you, this isn't supposed to happen. I'll be honest. I had kind of forgotten it all. Yeah. Was still competitive. And then he just won the U.S. Open. And I would say Serena Williams. We right. throw in that right. list too. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, do we need to talk about the helmet catch here? Go for I it. Do. I, I don't really want to, but Chris, I think we have. I, uh, we'll have Chris. I real I'd be happy to. Talk to. About it. Okay. Um, I actually didn't research to see if this was the biggest upset in terms of. Um, in terms of Vegas lines, but the Pat, the Pats were heavily favored over mm-hmm. the New York Giants, and um, a little <laughs> upstart kid named Eli Manning um, uh, had one of the two games of his life, and uh, the Giants upset the Pats seventeen to fourteen in uh, Super Bowl fifty or sixty two. Yes, the eighteen and zero at the time. Sorry. Yeah, as much yeah. as we want to see like Sam wants great players, we also want to see them lose occasionally. Yep. Mm-hmm. The Patriots loss puts it high up. I'm kind of out of moments, except for another Homer moment. This is one of the years where the Twins forced a one game playoff in the AL Central, and they lost to the White Sox because of a coin flip. But then the next year, they play game 163 against the Tigers and won yep. the title. All right. I'm going to go to college basketball Good for two things. First, the Kansas Jayhawks defeat Memphis. That was th- a 38-1 Memphis team full of one-and-done players. This is uh, Coach Cal still there. Uh, in a game that goes to overtime, I think Mario Chalmers hits a buzzer beater yes, to send does. it to overtime. But along with it, that is the year that Steph Curry takes Davidson to the Elite Eight, and Curry goes nuts. That was two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah, and oh. it's uh, that was such a fun tournament to watch to, yeah. to throw uh, young Curry into that. Yep. Um, by the time, and the only reason they lost in the Elite, and they only lost by two points in the Elite. Two eight. Kansas, yeah. Two Kansas, uh, and Kansas for part of the game triple teamed Steph mm-hmm. Curry. Yeah, it was yeah. nuts. Yeah. Um, I will th- let me throw another basketball thing out there. Um, this was the, the the Boston Celtics year of the of the big three um, of Garnett um, and um, and Pierce and um, and Ray Allen, and uh, I would say this is the. Ful- the fulmination of the NBA super team, which starts with the dream team in 92, mm-hmm. but ends, uh, really comes into the actual team level in, in 2008. And they beat LA to win the NBA championship. Um, I got one more because I got else? a couple more. Yeah. Go so uh, we need to wrap up soon. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I'll just say this real quick. Fresno State wins the College World Series. They're the biggest underdog ever to win the College World Series. And I'll say that Tiger wins the U.S. Open, which was his last major until this year. Okay. And Pacquiao de la Hoya. Pacquiao beats de la Hoya. Oh, yeah. Sorry. 
Okay. <laughs> if, the, if the audience doesn't vote for 2008, I don't know what we're doing wrong. Okay. All right. So all that said, you've got a few choices here. If I got it up right in chronological order, we've got 1941, DiMaggio, Williams, Joe Lewis, Worldway. Mm-hmm. We've got 1954, Roger Bannister, Babe Dittrickson, Zaharias, Willie Mays catch. And then into the 70s, we've got 1972, 73, and 75 all competing. 1984 with the Summer Olympics, uh, NBA changing with uh, Jordan Barkley, Stockton, Elijah Wem being drafted, et cetera, et cetera. The Hail Mary from Doug Flutie. 1991, 1992 uh, are back to back. And then 2008 is our one. You forgot 1982 in there. Oh, 1980 was for yep. mine. Yep, Miracle on Ice. And then 2008 was our one consensus pick. Yeah. Do we actually just coincidentally arrive at that, or did people steer away from certain years because you knew? I thought real seriously about 2016. You could make a really good case for 2016. Yeah, that was my yeah. son's choice, but I just didn't. I couldn't pick something that was within the last four years. That yeah. seems same. I ruled in 16 out just for that. Yeah, that but it's pretty good. Same thing. Yeah. Okay, so we will put this up. We'll let you know. But basically, what you're going to want to do is go to our Facebook page for mm-hmm. the Live from AC Second Network. It's a good week to go there. You're going to find new episodes of Bookish at Bethel, a new episode of Election Shock Therapy just mm-hmm. dropped. Tweet Victory, I assume, is it's coming. coming. <laughs> so we're kind of back in full swing on this podcast network. We'll post the poll there along with the link to this episode. And I'll have a show page at pietoschoolman.com, as I usually do. So you're going to have to vote for four of these selections. Um, and if you want to comment and share years that we've missed, that's fine. Please too. do, yeah. Yeah, please. Okay, so it's been a long segment, but a good one. We'll be back to wrap things up in just a second. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com. Almost out of time. Sam, take us to three to see. All right. Let's not overthink this, folks. Uh, It is a stretch run for Major League Baseball's regular season. There's nothing better than playoff baseball when your team is in it. In order to make it and go deep into the playoffs, you have to finish strong. So the Minnesota Twins currently have a five-game lead in the AL Central, even after not a great weekend against Cleveland. So this is why we love sports. Your team in the hunt. They actually have a team that can go deep in the playoffs. I'm so glad my son can watch this happen. Yes. Yep. Chris Moore. Get well soon, Byron Buxton. Um, I'm not going to overthink this either. Uh, the Minnesota Vikings visit the Green Bay Packers this Sunday. The winner takes an early lead in the NFC North. The division could be tight with projected win totals between the first and fourth place teams only differing by 2.5 games. The game could be a defensive clinic as both teams were great at stopping the run in their first game. And I'm not going to overthink it either. The 2019 Chess World Cup started this week <laughs> in Russia. Now, I wasn't going to include this, but one of my colleagues insisted at some point last spring that chess is a sport, so I'm going to run with yes. it. Apparently, there are 128 players in Russia right now competing in seven single elimination rounds that run until October 4th. Ding Liren of China is the top seed. There's six Americans in the field. The best bet is number four seed, Wesley So, a recent immigrant from the Philippines. 
Let's Bobby go Fischer was not on my list of athletes, but should have been. Should have been. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I had a lot of fun, you guys. Hopefully, listeners, you had a lot of fun, too. Uh, you can always get in touch with us. Sam, how do, you, how do they get us uh, thoughts of stories we missed during the summer, years to be included? Uh, it's at livefromacysecond at gmail.com, I think. And Chris, mm-hmm. can you finish right. us out? On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, thanks for listening to us. We'll be back in your feed real soon with some more sports and politics and history content. Go Royals.